0: Our sermon text this morning as we continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. And we're coming now to the end, the very end, of the book of Hebrews. Um, As we were reminded last week, the apostles have been making a, a kind of glorious argument about the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which Um, His status as the ascended Son of God, our great high priest, gives us access to the holy presence of God. But along with that, he has also argued in chapter 12 that it is for us um, to respond to all that Christ has done by, as the apostle puts it, striving for peace and seeking the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And here in chapter 13, the apostle begins to explain in great detail the nature of that holiness, the holiness to which the people of God are called to pursue and embrace and through God's grace and by the work of his Holy Spirit to even become. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word from Hebrews 13 let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Love one another. That's what Jesus tells his disciples on the night before his death. That's how he sums up in one command all that he has been instructing them in the three years of his ministry. Love one another. On another occasion, Um, When Jesus was asked to specify the greatest commandment in all of the law of God, he said this, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But the second is like it, Jesus said. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In like manner, in Hebrews 13, as the Apostle sums up the Christian life and he describes the holiness for which we are to strive, he begins it by instructing his readers, let brotherly love continue. Love one another. This command clearly is the center of the heart of the law of God. It was the heart of the Old Testament law. And it's the heart of the commands that are given by Jesus and by his apostles following after him. But what does this command to love one another, particularly in the context of the body of Christ, really mean? What does that look like? How do we obey it? How do we do it? How do we practice what we're instructed here? How do we know if we're being obedient to this command, if we're not Careful! I think it's possible that this command to love one another might just devolve into something that feels purely internal, as though loving one another is primarily about having a sort of positive and cheerful disposition toward other people. The command to love one another might become something like, well, just, you know, be nice, right? Don't be a jerk. Be nice. But the command to love one another given to us by our Lord Jesus and reiterated by his apostles, is about far more than simply our internal disposition. It's about far more than our emotions. In fact, as we come to see in Hebrews 13, 2 and 3 this morning, which is really just an initial explanation of what the apostle means in verse 1 by, let brotherly love continue, when we come to verses 2 and 3 which is a, an explanation of that love i have both good news for you friends and maybe bad news in some sense uh, the good news is that these verses really begin to spell it out they begin to put you know flesh on the bones of what it means to love one another you don't have to worry as you read through hebrews 13 and other portions of the exhortations and the epistles and throughout the law of god about what this commandment actually means. As it turns out, the command to love one another is not just some vague um, disposition. Not when you actually wrestle with the scriptures, and particularly this morning with these two verses. That's the good news. The bad news, so to speak, is that verses 2 and 3 really begin to unpack the costliness of what it means for us to actually love one another in the church of God. Friends, it is no easy thing to love one another. Remember, Jesus said those words and then he went out and died. To love one another, as we will see in our text this morning, requires far more than a positive internal disposition. No, loving one another actually requires sacrificing, giving up for the sake of others. Things like our energy, our wealth our time, our emotional commitments, even our own preferences. In fact, I would argue that there's no way to love one another in the body of Christ without cost. And one clear litmus test for you of whether or not you are actually loving one another according to the commandment of our Lord is whether you know something about that cost. Whether it's costing you something. Is your love for others in the body actually costing you something? Here's how the apostle describes what it means to let brotherly love continue. It's twofold. First, in verse 2, he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then secondly, In verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Uh, We can summarize these two actions, these two great actions of Christian love in this way, I think, that the apostle gives us here. First, as an expression of love, brotherly love, we show hospitality to strangers In other words, the first movement of brotherly love is to bring outsiders in, right? Literally, bring them in to our homes and our tables, those who are on the outside, those who are unknown to us, those who are foreign to us. It's the first movement of love, of brotherly love. The second movement of brotherly love is that we are to go out to those who are in the body who are in need, to those who are in prison to those who are mistreated, to go out and find them and serve them. These are the two great movements of brotherly love in the church of God, to bring outsiders in and to find those, to go out to find those who are in need. Let's start with verse 2, which instructs us to make space for the stranger, the outsider, at cost to ourselves. There's no way... To practice hospitality without cost to yourself. Listen again to what the apostle says. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Almost certainly one of the backdrops for the apostles' wording of this command is the encounter that Abraham had with the three mysterious men who come to visit him at his tent in Genesis 18, as we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning. You see, in that story, the writer of Genesis tells us that Yahweh himself, the Lord Yahweh, actually appeared to Abraham, but he appeared in an unusual manner. He appeared in the, in the, in the figure of three strangers, three strange, unknown men, who approached Abraham's tent in the heat of the day, as Genesis 18 tells us. Abraham, to be clear, didn't know these men. They were strangers to him, but his response forms a kind of vision of what Christian hospitality looks like. Genesis 18 begins by telling us Abraham had been resting in his tent before the men arrived, but when they appear before him, he gets up immediately and begins to serve them. He welcomes them with kind words. He brings water for their feet. He tells them, here, sit down in the shade and relax. And then Abraham and Sarah together rush. That word quickly is repeated again and again in that passage. They're rushing to prepare a feast for these strangers. Though Abraham and Sarah are wealthy, they have many servants, they are personally preparing the food for these men. Sarah is making the bread. Abraham is going to the herd to find the right calf. Abraham personally serves the men the delicious meal that has been prepared. He stands while they eat as though he was their servant. And it is only after the meal, it seems, that Abraham and Sarah begin to fully understand and realize who these men are. That the Lord, that Yahweh himself, has appeared to them. Probably as best as I can understand this passage, these three men are, are, uh, one, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus, and two angels who are with him. The apostle's exhortation to his readers to not neglect hospitality, because by showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels, is also a clear allusion to the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Who as we heard in our gospel reading this morning taught that when his followers welcome the least of his brethren who are strangers to them, they're actually welcoming Christ himself. Beloved, what these passages are seeking to teach us, the story in Genesis 18, the words of our Lord in Matthew 25, is that there is a, a kind of deep and mysterious holiness sacredness to hospitality. That hospitality is is not just some sort of like optional add-on thing. It's actually a fundamental practice of the Christian life. And hospitality in its essence is welcoming those whom you do not know well into your home, into your space, and making them comfortable, serving them there with welcome, with interest, with with attention, with conversation, with good questions, with food and drink. Now, to be clear, I want to make this distinction because it's important. Hospitality is different from entertaining. Okay? Not the same thing. Now, entertaining is great, right? There's nothing wrong with entertaining. But entertaining is what you do with people whom you know well. Right? And there's nothing wrong with having friends over that you know well to, for a meal or a party or to, to watch a football game or whatever. That, that's wonderful. But just to be clear, that's not what the Scriptures are talking about when they talk about showing hospitality. Because hospitality is something that you offer to people who are on the outside. People who might not repay you ever for the kindness that you're offering them. Our Lord Himself, He describes the hospitality that He calls His followers to in these words in Luke 14. He says, and this is profound teaching from Jesus, worth our reflection. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid, right? Now, Jesus isn't saying you can never have a party with your friends, but he is saying when you do that, you're going to get repaid by them in sort of a mutual, you know, they're going to have you over, you're going to have them over. He says, don't do that. When you give a feast, here's how you give it. He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And who will repay you at the resurrection of the just? God himself. In Hebrews 13, it's important to know this, the Greek word that we translate as hospitality is actually just a compound Greek word that means stranger love. Love of stranger, that's what it means. That word hospitality in the English language has taken on a much more broad meaning beyond just loving strangers. But in the New Testament, that's simply what the word is. Do not neglect to practice stranger love. Love of stranger is what the apostle says there literally. Do not neglect to practice the love of the stranger. And that's actually exactly what biblical hospitality is. In the, in the example of Abraham and the teaching of our Lord Jesus and the instruction of the apostles, it's welcoming into our homes, into our lives, and actually serving and breaking bread with people who are not well known to us. People who are on the outside, people who may never be able to repay that favor to us. I just want to speak for a moment From my own heart about this. Throughout my 14 years of pastoral ministry, Amy and I have really sought to do this. I'm not saying we're perfect, um, but it's been a central feature of our life in an intentional way. Over the years, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, which is the day we most regularly practice hospitality, but also holiday by holiday, um, both in St. Louis, um, where I served as a pastor for six years and now, here in Texas for the past eight years, um, we've had, I mean, I don't even know how many, right? Hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people in our home uh, and welcome them. Um, with It's not elaborate, it's not fancy, but welcome them, right? Said, have a seat. Here is food and drink. Here is conversation. Here are questions. Here is a blessing. And, and, and as we've done that, we've especially targeted always those who are new, those who are on the outside of the body, those who don't have a place to go at all at Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. Like those are the people that we have really focused on welcoming into our homes at the expense of all others, really. And I just want to testify to you that embracing this kind of practice of regular Hospitality, regular stranger love, is a profoundly good way to spend your life on behalf of others. Right? Some of those people who have come into our homes initially as strangers became deep friends over time. Right? So many of our friendships began with hospitality. But some of those who have come into our home drifted out of our lives just as quickly as they appeared. Right? We never, literally, in some cases, never saw them again. But in every situation, the hospitality that we have been privileged, and I mean that word, privileged to share with others, has been in some mysterious sense a way in which we have welcomed Christ himself into our homes. That's what you're doing when you're doing this kind of stranger love. You're welcoming Christ. When you welcome the outsider, when you welcome the unknown, when you welcome the new person, the lonely person, When you give them a seat at your table, you are welcoming Christ. And what I want you to really believe and wrestle with, beloved, this morning is that this is something that you're called to as well. I'm not saying it has to be every week, but I'm saying it's something that you're called to. It's part of the Christian life. Each of you have homes, each of you have food to share that qualifies you to practice hospitality. I encourage you to use those gifts to open their doors and see and experience and taste the blessing that hospitality actually brings in your lives. In verse 3 the apostle describes the second part of brotherly love. He says this. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Here again, the apostles emphasizing that that common and shared life that we have with those who are in the body, or to act like what is happening to them is happening to us. And we are called, as it turns out, not only to open our homes to strangers, but actually to go out of our homes in service to those who are in need. The prisoners mentioned here by the apostle are likely brothers and sisters in Christ who have been imprisoned for their faith. The writer has already alluded to that imprisonment earlier in his epistle. And remember, prisoners in the ancient world, the Roman state did not, did not at all provide for their needs, right? They were utterly dependent upon others on the outside, others who were not imprisoned for food and clothing and medical care. All of it, they were completely dependent on others. If no one visited you in prison in the ancient world, you weren't just lonely, you starved. Or you died from exposure or sickness. Those in prison were unable to work, unable to provide for themselves. And so they were completely dependent on the provision of the church, of the body of Christ for their needs. And so the the point the apostle is making is that this too is a fundamental part of brotherly love. To remember, to not forget those who are in need, those who are dependent upon our service to them and to meet those needs with our presence. right? You can't meet the needs of someone who is imprisoned without actually going to them, going to where they are. Right? The apostle here is emphasizing the need to be actively watching for needs in the body, right? To, to, to scan the congregation, so to speak, to keep our eyes open for those who are being mistreated, those who are in trouble, those who are weak, those who are too weak to care for their needs physically, emotionally, or spiritually. We're supposed to pay attention and to seize the initiative in going out and meeting those needs wherever they appear. Remember those who are in need, the apostle says. Which implies that not being aware of the needs of others is not an excuse for failing to meet them. Right? He puts the onus on the person with the resources, not on the person with the needs. It's incumbent for us not to just wait for people to ask us for help, but to search out the places where need exists. That's the, what the apostle is saying here. That's what brotherly love means. Again, just like those who are to be the primary recipients of our hospitality, those whom we go out and serve in this way are typically not going to be able to repay us, pay us back financially or in time or energy or emotionally, whatever, for the service that we render to them. And I just want to think about that for a moment. That's a common dynamic in both of these instructions, showing love and service to those who don't necessarily repay you. I think this dynamic speaks to both the cost and, as well as the freedom of Christian love. You see, the cost of loving others in this way that the scripture describes is that you end up giving things that are never paid back to you in this life. It's just, it's just how it works. You're called to give up energy that you'll never get back, time you'll never get back, emotional you know, just intimacy and, and investment that you don't necessarily get back, Uh, Wealth that you don't get back, presents that you can't spend in other places. and, And that's a real cost. I don't want to shy away from that reality. Let brotherly love continue is a costly command. And I hope, friends, that you know something of that cost. The cost that I'm describing, the cost that comes from loving others in the body because I don't think that genuine love of other, others in the body of Christ is possible without feeling that tension, without feeling that sacrifice, without feeling that cost. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if the idea of loving others in the church in a way that is at least somewhat painful, if that doesn't resonate with your experience, then I would encourage you, friend, lovingly, gently, but firmly To consider whether you're really loving others in the church. Whether you're really embracing the kind of brotherly love that our Lord has called you to. Because you should feel it. It should be costing you something. Not just occasionally, but regularly. Because loving one another according to the commandment of our Lord is not simply an internal disposition. It's not just kind of being basically nice and friendly to other people and thinking, you know, well, if someone asks me for something, I'll do my best to help out as long as, you know, it fits in with my other things I've got going on. Like, no, that's not what we're talking about. That's not it. No, the the love we're called to in the body is costly. It manifests itself in opening our homes the intimate spaces of our lives to strangers and seeking out those who are in need, who are dependent upon our presence and care. Love in this way is actually sacrificial. It means giving of yourself. But friends, what I want you to know is that there is not just a cost associated with this kind of love. There's also a kind of radical freedom in this kind of love. There's a kind of radical freedom in hosting and serving others without any expectation of it being repaid, of your hospitality or your service being reciprocated. There's a remarkable freedom once you just sort of give that up and say, you know what, that's not what I'm in it for. And that's because... Loving others without giving thought to how you might get something out of it, how you might be loved in return or honored in return or repaid in turn, is actually one of the most fundamental ways that we enter into the life of God himself. Remember the words of our Lord. In Luke 6, he taught his disciples, he said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to get back the same amount. But, Jesus says, there's another way. But love your enemy. And do good and lend, expecting nothing. Do you hear that word? Expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, he says. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he that is God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Friends, I promise you that this commandment is not just out there so that we like sort of prove our worth to God or something. Like that's not what it's there. It's there because this is a good way to live. Like this is actually how you're created to live, to love people like this. And there's such a deep blessing when you begin to love others the way that Jesus calls you to. Because you know what happens? You stop playing the game that everyone plays their whole lives. You know that game, right? You know it. You're no longer keeping score. You're no longer saying, well, if I invite them to my house, they had better invite me back, right? They better have me over. If, I come, if they come to my party, I'd better be included on their RSCP list when that comes around. If I remember their birthday, they had better remember mine. Now, you're not doing that anymore. You're no longer saying, you know, I'm going to serve others, but I really need for my service to others to be recognized, right? To be appreciated. I demand that all my selfless work be acknowledged and honored and appreciated by those who benefit from it and from those who could learn from it, right? You don't, you just say, no, you're just, you're opting out of that game. That's the freedom that comes with loving others the way that Jesus commands. And friends, that game is such an exhausting way to live. It's so exhausting to keep score that way. Because you can never get the ledgers to balance, right? It's it's impossible. It just doesn't work. Living like that does not bring the satisfaction and joy that you were created for and that Jesus longs for you to have No, friends, the way of freedom, the way of blessedness is to love, as our Lord Jesus describes, to love expecting nothing, nothing in return. Because if you love in that way, mysteriously, here's what happens. Your reward is great. Greater than any reward you could ever receive in this world. Because as Jesus says, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just, you will be the sons of the Most High. Beloved, this costly way of love, these practices of hospitality to strangers and service to those who are in need, who are unable to repay us, this really is the way to abundant life. Because the promise of our Lord is true, it really is. I can testify to it, it is true. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And then he expands on that in this profound metaphor. He says, which is one of the great principles of the spiritual life. He says, give, and it will be given to you. How it will be given? Good measure, Jesus says. Pressed down, shaken together. Running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.